For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, It's a beautiful day here in New England. I know I often comment on the weather because it's often either really bad or really nice. Today's really nice, so I'm thankful for that today. Um, The other thing I'm really thankful for is that we as a collective team here at College Coach have had what I would consider one of the more interesting conversations back and forth via email. It's amazing to me how often we interact with each other, considering that we're scattered all over the country, but there was a really good article in today's Boston Globe about the college debt crisis that's affecting a lot of low-income families, Uh, and we had a lot of, I wouldn't necessarily say debate, but a lot of discussion going back and forth internally about how students make choices, you know, how they decide where they're going to go to college, and also about the practice of gapping students, which is giving them a financial aid package that doesn't meet their full need, and then you know, that ends up being, putting them sometimes tens of thousands, even $100,000 or more in debt by the time that they graduate, if they graduate. So super interesting article. If you're interested, I would definitely um, take a look on the internet and read that, um, read that piece. Um, We've also, we've talked about that in the past here on the show, and we're going to certainly discuss it in the future, but it did remind me that it's just so important to take a really realistic look at family finances before you commit to college, um, because there's a lot of debt that might come with it. And it's just really important to be honest as a parent with your kid and as a kid to really sometimes accept the fact that maybe the vision you had of what college was going to look like might be a little bit different. Um, And that might not be a bad thing because it means that you won't be so in debt when you graduate. Anyway, interestingly enough, we already had two segments today that are devoted to paths to college and college costs. Um, Later in the show, we're going to talk about finding other sources of college money that might already be in your budget or in your pocket, so to speak. Um, But first, uh, thousands of students hope to study in the University of California system, but either they don't have the money for four years of study, we just mentioned that, or maybe they don't have the grades and the test scores to get into the UC system right out of college. Uh, And the UC system actually has a solution for that, and I'm excited to welcome um, Becky Leichling, one of our California-based College Coach colleagues, who's going to walk us through it. Hi, Becky. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining. I really appreciate it. Um, and like I say, it just feels awfully timely that we're talking about this today after all the back and forth um, this afternoon about that Boston Globe article. Um, My first question for you is, we talk to a lot of California families, you in particular, because you're based in California, um, and 
But when, I, when I'm on those calls, I will often get asked about starting in a community college and ending up at, say, UCLA or Berkeley. And um, I guess my big question for you is, does that really happen? Can you literally start in a two-year school and end up at one of the flagships in the UC system? Yes, definitely so. Um, I, I can't speak for the you know, facts and figures for other systems, but here in California, that is expected as part of the California Master Plan for Education. So about one-third of students who graduate from the UC with a four-year degree started at a two-year college and successfully transferred. And so every year, Berkeley, UCLA, they usually admit about 5,000 transfer students each. Wow. Um, so it's definitely a pathway that is viable and available, whatever reason you started at the community college. Got it. So, I mean, I, I sometimes get asked about that um, in terms of like a past, uh, is that a good path to an Ivy, let's say. And, you know, in general, I would say not usually, um, not that it doesn't happen, but just that it's very rare. And so I do think a really key point here is not only is it not rare in the UC system, but it's a significant piece of how they expect to get students. Um, exactly. Is, yeah. So when you think about this choice as, as a family, um, are there, is it, can you just go to your local community college if you are a California state resident or do you, are there some that are better than others and do you advise students to go to different communities um, to attend their community college? How does that piece work? Oh, that's a tricky question, and I think, you know, whenever we talk about fit on the radio show and with our families, so much of that conversation depends on, you know, what your needs are, what your students' needs are. Um, so one way that you can assess some data as you're trying to figure out what community college options you have is through the California Community College's um, Student Success Scorecard, and that is a heck of a name. If you want to mm-hmm. just use your favorite internet search engine and put in California Community College scorecard, you'll get there, but you can then see every single community college in the state and their success rates for um, students who successfully complete the transfer process. Um, Got it. So that's an easy fact to look up, but I think even there, in the same way whenever you're looking at facts and rankings at a broad level, you've got to drill down to what does that mean for your student and what are the reasons your family is thinking about the community college option? Is it uh, maturity, or is it college readiness? Is it cost? In which case, you know, the reason you would pick community college A over community college B is so dependent on what you're looking for. Um, there are a few community colleges that have residential options. So if your student might benefit from being in a dorm and having that sort of environment, that would make your choices a little bit more narrow. But beyond that, I think you know, it's up to the student to make that situation work for them. And so I would hate to say that there's one school that is better universally than another for all students. Got it. And actually, I have heard rumors that there are even some community colleges in, in uh, California where they're residential. You can live and they have dorms. Is that true or do I have that wrong? No, you're right. Um, there's actually a few community colleges around the country that do that. There's a great list on Wikipedia. I can't say it's 100% accurate. Um, but City College in Santa Barbara is one that a lot of students look to for that option. Um, there's a few other in more kind of remote, isolated areas of California where there's dorms because otherwise kids be driving for hours to get there. Uh, it's definitely an option if that's something that's important to you. 
got it. And I, and again, I want to point out exactly what Becky said. This is what is right for your family. So if the whole point of going to community college and then transferring to the four-year institution is to save money, living on campus is not going to solve that problem. And so it might sound really cool, like, oh, wow, I can pay a lot less and live there. It's almost like the real four-year college experience that I imagined, well, that's (laughs) probably going to start to get very pricey and may not be the the right option for you to consider um, if costs are a big concern. What about once you're there and – is there, you know, one of the things, one of the nice things about going direct from high school to a four-year institution is that you have the help and assistance, in theory anyway, of a guidance counselor. Now, I say mm-hmm. in theory because at some schools, I think we, we always talk about the national average is 473 students to every one guidance counselor. Um, I know of schools that I personally worked with when I was at Penn where there were two guidance counselors for a senior class of a thousand. Uh, and then I also know of schools where there are, there's one guidance counselor for every 50 kids. So that's going to vary wild, wildly depending on where you're at. But what about when you're in that community college? Do you, do they have that kind of support? How does that transfer process typically unfold? So this is a, another situation where I think to your point, Beth, there are it's just different the way the support system works. There are definitely very dedicated and committed transfer advisors who are at the community college level who are there to help your student navigate that process. But if you think about the general population of a community college, they're not all high school seniors. Some of them mm-hmm. are adults returning at the age of 60 for classes. Some are working parents. Some are kids straight from high school. And so there's not an obvious, you know, follow this template and you'll make it because everyone is so different. So here too, students really do need to take um, accountability for their own pathway and be proactive. The counselors are there to assist you. There are a lot of great resources, especially here in California, but it's on the student to make it happen. Right. So no one's chasing you down. Right. Exactly. Um, I always advise my students who are starting at community college to go meet with the transfer advisors day one Mm -hmm. to make sure you're registering for the right classes, but also to make sure... You introduce yourself, they get to know you. It's so much easier to get help when you need it from someone that you've already built a relationship with. Um, You can actually find a lot of the resources on your own through a wonderful website called assist.org, which lists the the options that you will need to pursue at any community college in order to transfer to any four-year college in the state. Those are called articulation agreements, and a lot of community colleges have them nationally, but here in California, there's such a clear process to transfer your credits. Again, it's super easy to do. It just requires the onus on the student's part to be planning ahead. Right. And I do think that's key, planning ahead. I mean, I love that advice about meeting with a transfer counselor day one. I also think you should be on that website probably before you even go to community college because um, there's nothing worse than thinking I'm going to spend two years here and then I'm going to transfer into a, two, into a four-year institution and then I'm going to get my degree in two years only to discover that you didn't take the right classes to transfer. And then when you get there to the four-year institution, you need more classes than you can take in those two years. And so now what should have taken you four years might take you three or four years at the community college and then another three years in the, in the four-year college. And guess what? if money is a concern, now you've spent way more than you needed to because you weren't really paying attention. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely so. What about, um, speaking of that, um, they know they want to transfer. What do they do about, you know, do they need to know what they're going to major in when they get to that four-year institution? Is being undecided an option? Um, how does that, I know, because I know when at Penn, if you transferred in as a, you know, you did your two years somewhere else and then you arrived on our campus as a junior, you needed to know what you were majoring in. There wasn't going to be an opportunity for you to wait around, take some classes, find a major, change your mind. You know, you needed to come in ready to pursue that major for the two years you were going to be there. Major preparation is definitely a really important factor in the holistic review at the UCs. Uh, So students who are starting at the community college level will very much benefit from as soon as they know their major to begin filling those prerequisites. And Mm -hmm. here, too, the the assist.org website can be really helpful. You can say, if I'm at De Anza and I want to transfer to UCLA as a psychology major, it will list the 10 courses that you have to take at the end to make that work. Um, for students who are not as sure what school they're looking at or are still thinking about their major options, the UC has also identified what they call transfer pathways, which are a recommended list of courses for the 21 most popular majors in the UC system. So if you're thinking economics or computer science, the pathway suggests the catch-all coursework that you should try to pursue at the community college level so that you can transfer. Um, and there is also a kind of a general curriculum called the AGETSI, which is an acronym for the Intersegmental General Education Transfer Curriculum. <laughs> I had to read that because I always forget it. And that's kind of your broad liberal arts and sciences requirements of the history, the math, the English, the language. If you have no idea what you want to major in, then I would start by satisfying your AGETSI because that will yeah. still allow you to transfer as a junior um, to schools that allow made students without a declared major. Got it. One thing I want I do want to point out, I was at NACAC last year and I went to a session on transferring into the UC system um, from other places. And one of the things they did mention is that they had in many cases at many of the campuses slots available, but not as many students, you know, because they look at it at major or by major in some cases that, you know, there were like, a huge majority of the students were applying to the same 12 majors. So if you look at that mm-hmm. list of the most popular majors, one thing to keep in mind there is that most popular means also most packed and likely most applicants. And so mm-hmm. I certainly don't recommend going for a major that you don't want just to get in. That completely defeats the purpose. Um, but I wouldn't also recommend that you choose a major simply because you see that it's popular. Um, that's not necessarily a good idea either. So just to throw it out. And I think that's especially true, you know, if you're applying from a certain community college to a certain college, uh, if you're at Berkeley, they have such a huge demand for computer science and engineering. Uh, and I'm calling you from Palo Alto in the heart of Silicon Valley. A vast majority of my students are interested in computer science. And so, to your point, Beth, if that's, you know, if that's something you're just kind of haphazardly opting into, it's not as likely that you're going to be as successful in your transfer process because there are kids who have been really focused on that from day one. Yep. Got it. So, I, really, my last question is about, um, because I know we get asked this a lot, too. So, let's say 
that you have, you know, your ultimate goal is to transfer to the UC system. Um, you applied to colleges and you're a senior, and right now you have a choice between community college or a four-year institution. Could be a Cal State option, could be a four-year private that's in California, could be a four-year private that's outside of California, could be an Ivy for all we know, you know, super highly selective. Um, does, is, it a, is there a better choice to make um, in that case if the ultimate goal is to be in the UC system? I think if your end goal is to graduate from the UC and you don't have that choice coming out of high school, then I would start at a, a community college in California. 95% of transfers to the UC system are from the community college system. That's the way it is structured. That's what the taxpayers are paying for, for that pipeline. And so you are so much more likely to get into Berkeley from Foothill Community College than from Stanford. Right, which is very counterintuitive to a lot of people. Um, but And it's certainly when I heard it, I was kind of shocked, but really good to know. And actually kind of cool to know that you could take the less expensive option and it would be more impactful in a positive way for you than choosing the most expensive option out there. So that's kind of cool. Well, and you're thinking about from a, again, a taxpayer perspective, our tax dollars are trying to educate a um, mature, thoughtful, aware, responsible workforce and, you know, voter base. It doesn't matter to me if transfer student A went to Stanford or not. It matters that they're prepared and ready to make that transfer process. And so if our, that's, that's what we're paying for, for this great system that's getting as many California kids as possible to get a great education. And actually, that brings me to one other question that occurred to me as, as we're talking and as you're talking about the taxpayers. Um, there has been a lot in the media lately about California's embrace of out-of-state students. Um, if I live out of state, is, does it help me at all to move to California, enroll at Santa Monica Community College, and then am I therefore going to have a, as good a shot at getting to Berkeley as someone who um, lives in California, um, even if my permanent residence is back here in Massachusetts, or does it not really work that way? Uh, that's definitely something that I have had some students do. If you, if your goal is to get into Berkeley and you are not admitted from high school, then mm -hmm. you will have a better choice, a better chance of being admitted if you start at a California community college. And so whether that's being in one of the schools that has dorms or maybe you have an aunt or an uncle that you can live with or renting an apartment, um, it will make your transfer process much more easy, much easier. Right. Got it. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Becky, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, um, I thought that was super helpful and hopefully our listeners did too. Awesome. Have a great afternoon, Beth. Okay, great. Um, right after the break, we're going to be talking about how there might be money in your budget for college and you don't even realize it. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us, or thanks for sticking with us if you were here for our first segment um, I'm excited, as always, to welcome my colleague, Jean Mahan, to today's show because she used to work at Quinn Sigmund Community College, and I love the opportunity to say that name. Um, I'm getting good at it, and every time I say you it, are. I say to Jean, did I get it right? <laughs> She's getting better at that. <laughs> Am I getting better? Okay, you well, that's are, good. totally, yep. All right, all right, good. So, Jean has been here before. If you're a regular listener of this show, you've, you've heard her on a number of our other segments. But today, um, we're specifically talking about um, ways in which you, can, you might be able to pay some college costs out of pocket that you might not be thinking about. So, you know, when we think about paying for college, we frequently think about 
just how much money have I got saved and I guess how many loans am I going to have to take out? But the fact is that there actually, it's pretty likely that there might be some other sources of money in your budget that you didn't really think about that can be applied to those college costs. And um, some of these don't even require a lot of belt tightening or all that much sacrifice. Uh, And they can save you money in the long run because anything you can pay out of pocket, you're not having to take out a loan for and pay um, in uh, premiums later on down the road. So what's the first step, Jean, in, in kind of this process of finding this money to help pay for some of these costs? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this and, and <laughs> that you invited me on today. I'm really excited to talk about this because I, I talk to so many families, not only a college coach, but just, you know, in my own family and friends that, you know, really are thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't have another dime to spend. And so I liken this to when I was a kid and my dad would get up from the couch and I would run over and see if any change fell out into the sides <laughs> of the cushions, you know. Mm-hmm. That was a fun game for me when I was a kid. And so this is the same thing, you know, just really taking a look at your budget or, you know, if you don't keep a budget, you definitely have credit card and debit card statements. And go back and do like a forensic review of the past year and see what kind of money you've been spending on your kids. I did a little poll today of the uh, of our staff that has teenagers because my kids are not teenagers anymore, so I'm a few years away from some of these costs. But we came up with almost three thousand dollars at least that families are spending that they don't even realize. Things like summer camps, um, participation fees for sports. Uh, one of our coworkers here spends seven hundred and fifty dollars a year for one child to play three sports, and she has two. So 750 for that. If your kids are in like AAU ball, that's another 700. Um, equipment for those sports can run anywhere from 100 all the way to five or six or 700 dollars, depending on the sport. Your child just applied to colleges. Maybe they applied to 10. That's 600 dollars right there. Test mm-hmm. fees. Don't even get me started. You know uh, the the fees for AP, ACT, SAT. And when my kids were going through this process, I seriously had my credit card number burned into my brain because <laughs> they were asking me for that information so often. So, and things like test prep, which can run anywhere from five hundred to two thousand dollars plus, depending on you know the method you're you're using to get it and how much you want. So those are some of the things, driver's ed, car insurance. If your child's going more than 100 miles away, that might be an expense that you can eliminate for that period of time when he's away. The cost of their car, maintaining it, I mean, not having that to worry about is, as they say on that ad, priceless. So, you know, those are just some of the things that I don't think families realize. And, you know, uh, if your child's in private school right now, that tuition is going to a different address. And a lot of times people just don't even think about that. They'll say, wow, I haven't saved for college. Well, yeah, you did. You didn't get an investment on it, but, you know, you're just right. going to take that money and send it somewhere else. Right. You've so, already been allocating that money towards yes. education. It's just instead of going into a bank account, you've been spending it for high right. school, and now you're just going to continue right. to spend it. It's just going to go to the college now. Right. And what better time when interest rates have been so low anyway, you probably wouldn't have gotten a great return on that in a savings account. So, right. you know, so there you haven't missed out that much, right? Um, right. You know, maybe uh, you're going to get an, a bonus from your employer. Maybe you're getting an income tax refund that you can apply to some of the college expenses. And oftentimes when, we're, when I'm chatting with a family, they'll say, well, it's only $1,000. 
And, but multiply that. If that's only 1,000 times four, that's $4,000 that you don't have to borrow or that you can use to stretch your savings out a little bit more. So even small amounts, don't, you know, turn up your nose at even a small amount because a $300 savings could mean a textbook, you know, yep. could mean a plane ticket if your child is traveling a distance to get to school. Um, so those are some of the really kind of easy things that we can do to see. Some other families might want to look at their budget and say, you know what, I'm no longer watching 5,000 channels. I'm going to cut back my cable package. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I have this gym membership and it's really making me feel guilty that I'm not using it. I'm going to get rid of it and use that money for college expenses. So those right. are ways that families probably don't really have to tighten their belts much at all because they've already been spending that money on their child. Um, right. Right, and, and they don't realize it until their kid goes away to college that that might, yeah, um, that might be there. What yeah. about, um, you know, I know some things that the colleges will automatically charge you for that maybe mm-hmm. you don't need, um, and we've talked about this before. I think looking at the bill, what are the yes. kinds of things that you might be able to kind of get rid of there that um, if you just take a close look and, and really pay, pay close attention. The first thing I think is health insurance. Most families have health insurance and their child will be covered under that health insurance plan. I would just always make sure that you double check with your insurance company to make sure that, you know, usually emergency visits are covered. Routine care might not be, but most kids are going to have a physical before they leave for school, so chances of them needing routine care at school are minimal at best. But that can sometimes save you $1,000 or more. And the schools proactively bill that so that um, every kid is covered just in case they don't have it. And it's really up to the family to make sure they're waiving it. It's a very simple procedure. Generally, all you do is go online, provide your name, the subscriber name, and the insurance company and number, and voila, you've just taken you know $1,000 off your bill. So that's one of the easiest things. The other thing is, you know, maybe your child initially signed up for a lab science or a studio course or something like that, and you see that there's a lab science charge on there um, or a studio fee, but your child maybe has changed their schedule or wasn't planning to take it at all. Those Mm -hmm. kinds of fees can be um, eliminated too. So, again, we're looking, you know, it's not always the $1,000 or the $5,000 charge. It's sometimes these little nickel and dime kind of fees that can um, that can kind of get in the way. So definitely looking, you know, looking to see that the dorm fee is charged, you know, correctly, that you're not getting charged for a more expensive dorm, a more expensive um, meal plan, those kinds of things. Right, exactly. Um, you know, yes, it might be nice for your child to live in a single, but mm-hmm. maybe they really need to live in a quad because that's going to save you a couple of thousand dollars over the course of the year. and. Yep you know, they're still getting to live at school. And mm-hmm. I would argue that having a roommate, maybe even having a bad roommate is... <laughs> it's a learning is as much, <laughs> It's exactly right. It's as much of an education as you might even get in the classroom right. sometimes. And having a roommate, you know, you're not quite as isolated and that person is going to kind of force you out the door or their friends are going to force you out the door. And that's a good thing when you go to college that you can, you know, make your own social network. Absolutely, absolutely. What about... Um, you know, we have talked about what if you didn't save. What if you did save, um, and so you are planning to use some of the savings um, uh-huh. to pay for college? So we're going to talk about this more in a segment on June 2nd. Lori Peltier will be talking about using 529 plans, so de- definitely tune in if you have a 529 or you want to learn more about putting your savings there. But, you know, if you're lucky enough to have that, you want to use that to cover either some or all of your costs up front so that you can 
reduce, eliminate, or even defer some borrowing that you might need to do. So, for example, if you have a 529 plan and you've got $40,000 in it and you can use that for the first year, great. Then you don't have to worry about a loan till second or third year. And right. remember that with, inter- uh, with apparently... Uh, especially parent loans accruing interest from the time they're dispersed, those can get quite expensive if they're sitting around for three or four years. Right, so. right, exactly. So the less borrowing you do and the more that you do, if you're going to do it, do it closer to graduation rather exactly. than early mm-hmm. on. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, there's always working, right, and yep. students working, and mm-hmm. there are different thoughts, schools have thought about this. What do you think about student employment? So um, I definitely think kids should have jobs in the summer, and they can use that money to cover their books and some of their personal expenses, you know, when they're on campus. I really love campus jobs. I was a campus work-study kid when I was in college, and I had a lot of really interesting work experiences. And I think it's great for a lot of reasons. One is that if kids haven't had a chance to work prior to this, it's a great way for them to get some experience. It may not directly be related to their field of interest. It may be. But still, it's something that they can put on a resume. If they're far from home, it's kind of nice for them to be working um, and there's another adult to kind of make sure things are okay. You know, maybe if Mm -hmm. they see that the student is a little anxious or depressed or ill or something, they can kind of reach out to the student or advise them where to go to get resources that they might need. So I think it's a good thing. It also teaches some great time management skills. Um, You know, if your child can get a job working five or six hours a week, it's more than likely not cutting into their study time because those five or six hours a week could be spent on Instagram, sleeping, hanging out with friends, who knows what. Um, but most kids, it's a great way for them to learn some time management skills and earn some money to help with their college expenses, give them a little skin in the game. Yes, I'm a big fan of that. I also was a work-study student, so perhaps we're sensing a theme here. <laughs> if you had to work in college, you feel like your kids should have to work in college. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, my stepson has a work-study job, and what's pretty cool about that is he's actually working for the dean at his um, school and you know they know him now Uh and he's and he's at a bigger state school and so it's made it a little smaller so that point you made about having adults who kind of have an eye on your kid um, really resonates with me I mean we're not helicopter parents we're assuming that he's doing well and he is but um, I think it's good for him to be a known quantity not only just someone keeping an eye on him but also I mean, professionally, when it comes time to get a job, if the dean of the college knows you mm-hmm. and can write a letter in your support, yeah. that's always a nice thing. So, right. um, you know, And my daughter have... worked in the advancement office at her college mm-hmm. and ended up actually going into that field when she graduated. So it gave right. her some great experience and sort of really kind of helped her get in the door um, because she had a little more experience than most newly minted graduates. Exactly, which mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, another thing, another way, and it's something that we've taken advantage of in our house, are payment plans. Yes. Um, and so that's also kind of a good way to maybe avoid taking out some loans, mm-hmm. um, but it's, even if you're not able to sit down and write a check yep. for an entire year. I love payment plans. I think they're the unsung heroes of college finance. <laughs> Not a lot of people are aware of them. Um, maybe they are once they actually, you know, deposit and they start getting this information, but people who are in the planning stages often don't know that these exist. And basically what it is is you're setting up an account with the school, and that 
account will cost you anywhere between $50 and $100 per year, and you're making payments to the school over either 6, 8, or 10 months, and a very small number of schools do it over 12 months, which is even better. Those monthly payments are usually interest-free, So it allows you to take some of it. Maybe you owe, say, $10,000, and you say, well, we looked at our budget, and we know over the course of the year that we can pay out of pocket on a payment plan $3,000. Great. You've just basically eliminated $12,000 of borrowing over four years and saved yourself a ton of money. I used it with one of my children. I found it extremely convenient. Um, I knew every month what I was going to be paying, and so there was no guess, and I didn't have to come up with two big chunks in the year. So I am a huge um, booster for payment plans. I think they're really, really great. Great way to help with just making the payments and and lowering your debt levels. Right. And and, and I think, again, getting back to what you were saying, I mean, a lot of times we're used to paying for our kids monthly fees for lots of different things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, somewhere they're going after school or an activity that they're taking part in or someone that um, in our office... Her son takes a lot of tennis lessons. Yeah. That's just a monthly nut that she's used to paying. Yeah. And now, granted, sometimes there's a giant difference between the monthly payment you're going to make to college and the monthly payment you would make to the sports. But if you um, cut back in a few other places, you might actually find that you have a chunk of what you already need for that monthly payment, and then you need to cut back a little bit more in some other places, and you might surprise yourself with what you can find. And even um, if it is only, say, $100 a month, but you we're talking mm-hmm. over a 10-month period, you know, you've got that money now, and just the act of putting that $100 a month onto a payment plan means that you have reduced your borrowing by $1,000. And I think that you really families have to get out of the mindset of saying, oh, it's only 1000 It's not going to make much of a difference when we're talking 50 but mm-hmm. that's where we get into trouble with borrowing. We just say, oh, it's only 1000 or it's only this or it's only that. And before we know it, the balances are growing. So yes. I think what we need to really look at is every dollar counts. Yes. And every dollar that I don't have to spend now, um, you know, that I don't have to borrow now is money I don't have to worry about later. I refer to that period after your children graduate from college when you've got oodles of debt as the hangover. You know, you're in this yeah. period for who knows how long, hopefully not that long, where you've got a lot of debt and you're still kind of paying, wouldn't it be great on the day your child graduates to say, woohoo, I'm free. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, to have as little debt as possible, I think is really, and, and honestly, it's really hard to get through college these days without borrowing. But, I mean, again, I think the whole, um, your mindset wants to be, let's get out of this as cheaply as, as possible. Yes, and I mean, I think they do studies that show that people who pay with credit cards spend a significant uh, amount more than those who are paying with cash. So the more that you can pay with cash, Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to say, well, it's just, oh, you know, a spring break trip. Oh, what's another $1,000? We'll just add that. We'll use some loans to pay for that. And it's a mindset. And I think that's really um, a really important point. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk on the June 9th program, we're going to be talking about uh, using Roth IRAs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so we don't need to talk about that today, but if you're interested in that, tune back on June 9th. Any other, we only have a minute, but anything else you wanted to quickly mention before um, we end the segment? Yep. So I definitely want to, uh, you know, families that are considering borrowing, sometimes a family will say to me, you know, we really don't want our child to borrow. 
And I really say, go back to them and say, but you know what, if your child can get a loan at a lower interest rate than you can, it doesn't make sense for you to borrow that full amount. So for example, let's go back to our $10,000 and your child's a freshman and they can borrow 5500 through the federal direct student loan program. The interest rate for the upcoming year on that loan is going to be 3.76 and a parent loan is going to be 6.31. So wow. it doesn't really make sense to borrow the full 10000 at a higher interest rate. Have your child borrow the 5500 at the lower interest rate. You borrow 4500 at the higher. If you want to help them pay that loan off later, go for it. The government doesn't care who's paying, paying it back as long as they get the money. Exactly. So, you know, and student loans are not, you know, you're not making payments on those while you're in school. Some of those loans are subsidized, meaning the interest is being paid while the borrower is in school, which is great. So those are the first types of loans. And then, you know, then you, then you start working backwards to the parent loans if that's what they need. Perfect. Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I think there was some really good information there. And hopefully we're sending lots of people, you know, off to look at their <laughs> bank accounts <laughs> and study. You know, tallying up, I will tell, I will tell you it is a little terrifying when you tally up how much money you actually spend on your children because we've been doing that. And when they are graduating from college, when they're done, we are going to be rolling in it. I can't wait. Yeah, I know it. And don't forget the food bill that goes down exponentially when they leave. There you go. There's another savings there. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining today. Uh, When we get back, we're going to be answering your listener questions on admissions. So, Uh, Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Um, Before we get to questions, uh, and thank you, I do want to say to all of our listeners for sending them in. We are getting tons and tons of questions. Hopefully, you're not frustrated if I'm not getting to yours, but we're trying to work through them, and we use some of them as ideas for segments, Um, so I appreciate that, too. It's really always helpful to know what you'd like to hear more about. Um, because then we can plan the show accordingly. Um, But I do want to let you know that we're going to be doing um, what I think is a really exciting uh, new group of segments over the summer with the goal of helping rising seniors navigate their way through the process. You know, when I work with students privately, my goal for them, depending on when they sign up, is for them to be completely you know, have their common application done by the end of the summer and go into the fall with a list of schools in hand with their, ideally with most of their standardized testing complete um, and really at that point primarily working on supplements. And so if you have a senior, if you're going to be a senior um, yourself, we're going to be um, doing some interesting things this summer to try and help you through that process and give you some deadlines and some homework assignments. So um, stay tuned. An official announcement and more details to come. Uh, so for right now, uh, I am happy, as always, to welcome my colleague Erica Braley to the show, and she's going to read some questions for me. I am very excited to learn more about that series coming up this summer. That sounds um, like it's going to be hugely helpful. I hope so. Um, that's the goal. Okay. <laughs> so we have lots of questions. So to, I'm just going to dive right in with the, All right. with the list. Um, Marilyn has a two-parter. So Marilyn's first question is, how many colleges should you apply to in total? For example, reaches, targets, et cetera. Is there a minimum or max number? Um, that is a really great question. We get asked a lot. Um, and I, my general advice is to start with a baseline of seven schools. Um, so that would mean two in the reach category where your child has a less than 50% chance of being admitted or where you as the student have a less than 50% chance of being admitted. At least three in the match category where um, you or your child has a better than 50% chance of being admitted, so or kind of about a 50% chance or better than that. And then at least two in the safety category where your child has a better than 90% chance of being admitted. So it's almost a virtual lock that they're going to get into those schools. Um, I do have students who maybe apply to slightly fewer schools. Some of my students are very averse to risk. They don't really want to apply to reaches, so they're going to do maybe four matches and um, a couple of safeties, so maybe they're only going to apply to six schools. Maybe they're going to do three matches and two safeties. They're only going to apply to five. Maybe they're only going to apply to a couple of safeties because um, finances are a big issue and they have... identified a few colleges where um, they look a lot better than the average accepted student, and as a result, they expect and anticipate some merit money, um, but they're going to apply to not that many of them because they are, you know, they're feeling pretty confident they're going to get into every school on their list. And I do have students who apply to a few more than that. Um, My 
a strong advice is that more than 10 is really now you're just kind of throwing things on the wall and see what sticks. And that's not a very good way to go about this process. It can lead to a lot of stress and anxiety, a lot of extra work um, at the end of the day. And when you get your answers back, what often happens with students who apply to far too many colleges is, as anticipated, they don't get into most of their reaches, which is what happens frequently, you know, if it's a reach, it's a reach for a reason. Um, and then they get into lots of, lots of the matches and safeties, but they haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about those schools because they were so enthralled with the reaches. And now they don't even know what to do. Um, so I really do think that starting with a baseline of seven and probably no more than 10 is really the ideal number of applications. And you can certainly do fewer than that. Um, but if you're going to do fewer, make sure that the list is balanced regardless. You don't ever want to just apply to all reaches unless the goal is not to go to college um, at the end. So what's part two of her question? Part two is around essays and choosing an essay topic. She writes, can you write for your essay when you first realized what you wanted to major in during college, such as communications? For example, your whole life shifted by engaging in essay contests, writing seminars, and other related journalists or speaking or public speaking clubs. It's personal and engaging. So I almost wonder if Marilyn's really asking a question here or sort of telling me this is what I <laughs> or my child is going to write about, and I'm, it's personal and engaging. Um, and my response to that is if it's personal and engaging, then awesome. Um, there, In my mind, there's really almost nothing that's off limits in an essay as a topic, um, there are certainly some things that I advise students to maybe steer clear of. So an essay describing the pain of your first love leaving you, probably not the best story you're going to share with the admissions office. Uh, a lot of students write about community service because they think that's what the admissions committee wants to hear about. And as a result, they have an essay that's pretty trite or doesn't feel very personal. But um, you know, you can really write about almost anything so long as it is indeed personal and engaging. So if that topic helps me know something important about who you are and, you know, isn't about I'm going to major in communications because I love communications, but, but is instead about that moment when you realize that this was your future and I see that moment and then you help me understand all the things you've done since then because that moment was so important to you and where you see it taking you in the future, well, absolutely, that's an essay I would be very interested in reading and it sounds great to me. Great. The next question is from Sunny. Sunny writes, my son applied to Cornell and University of Pennsylvania but didn't get in. So he chose Lehigh Engineering, which is also a great school. If he wants to transfer to an Ivy League, what should he do his first or second years at Lehigh? Uh, you know, it's not so different uh, from anything else in terms of, you know, what are those, what are places like Cornell and Penn look for? Um, they look for excellence. So, Either you had excellence in high school. Um, if you didn't get in from high school, then I would say the focus at Lehigh should really be uh, improving upon what he did in high school. And I think the other message would be that the farther you get from high school, the better the chances of, um, or the more focus that's going to be on your college career. So, 
Um, I don't really, it doesn't say here if he was waitlisted, although I would, I wouldn't anticipate that Sonny would have said if he was waitlisted at either Cornell or Penn. So he, he wasn't accepted to either of them. So all we know from that is that there was nothing in his application that made him stand out in a way that either school said, yes, we want this kid. Um, without looking at the grades and the test scores, I can't really make an assessment of how close he was. But I will say that, yeah, Lehigh is a great school, not easy to get into. So at least we know he probably was reasonably in the ballpark. Um, so if he does extremely well his freshman year, maybe that he might want to apply right away. My advice, though, usually to students who really want to transfer is you always want to submit your best possible application. And um, I generally advise that if you're going to apply to transfer, get two years of college or because actually when they review your application, you're really only going to have about a year and a half of college um, under your belt. And you want to um, you want to show as strong a grades as you can. You want to get involved. So you want to show involvement. You want to ideally kind of engage with your professors because they're going to ask about all those things. And then you also want to be thinking long and hard about what am I going to get at one of these institutions that I'm not getting here? And if you actually don't come up with a particularly good answer to that, then he might want to consider staying at Lehigh, but because it's Penn or because it's Cornell, because it's prestigious, these are not good reasons. He should be looking for specific things that he could get there that he can't get at Lehigh. But above and beyond anything else, doing well in school. Great. Our next question um, is about surveys after you go for a college visit. So he writes, um, in responding to college surveys after you go for a visit, should you tell the truth and be constructive, or should you just write how great everything was, for example, if it's your top choice school? Um, you know, I mean, I think they're asking you for this information because they're hoping to provide you with what is going to be most useful. If you didn't think that the visit was particularly useful or if you have some constructive feedback to share, I know that as an admissions office when I worked at Penn, we really we want to hear it awesome, if you, especially if you had a great idea or if something really didn't go well, how can we fix it if we don't know? So my advice is you want to be constructive um, with your feedback if you have some to share, but, you know, as with everything, I don't, you want to be mindful of how you present that. So if your feedback is, wow, this visit was terrible, we hated everything about it, my son's going to apply early decision, well, that doesn't make sense either. So... Um, I think I think it's very appropriate to provide constructive feedback if you have it. Um, generally speaking, there's no matchup. They're not going to take that comment card and put it in the student's file. So in actuality, there's probably never, ever going to be a connection made between the student and, um, and that feedback. So you may as well be... Um, you may as well be uh, uh, honest in an appropriate way. I, I think we have time for one more quick question, if you've got a quick one there. Um, sure. Here's, um, here's a quick one from um, Jackie, and I think it's quick because we've touched on this topic a little bit before. Um, how important are volunteer hours in an era, area that you may be interested in before you apply to college? 
Um, so very quickly, we have talked a lot about getting involved and, and what students should get involved in. I don't think that community service or volunteer work in and of itself is so important. I think if it's an area of interest to the student, awesome. But um, if the choice is between volunteering in a hospital or doing something that's more interesting for a student who's interested in pre-med, for example... I mean, hospital volunteer is so common uh, that it's not that exciting, but it might be really beneficial to the student. So uh, I think think more about what is the student going to get out of it than what is the college going to think about it, and that's really going to be your best bet. Um, all right, Erica, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and we're going to have Erica back because we do this every month. Thanks to all my guests. A few very quick notes before we wrap things up. Uh, next week, Sally's going to be hosting. She's going to be talking to Marie Bingham, who is currently a college counselor at a private school in uh, New Orleans. She's a former WashU admissions officer, and she's been pretty outspoken on issues of access. She's going to join us to discuss her and our opinions on the coalition application. We're also going to be talking about why you should consider studying abroad and how to pay for it if you decide to do that. Um, Keep those questions coming. We do segments every month answering your college finance and your college admissions questions. Our email address is gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And I also always want to remind you that we have a great, great archive. Um, You can also sign up and get free downloads of the show on iTunes. Rate us while you are there. We we need more people rating us. Um, We know lots of you are listening. Our, we have about 200,000 listeners in any given time period. And so if some of you would just take a minute to go and rate us on iTunes, that would be very helpful. Uh, and lots of other ways to interact with us. We have a free blog, which is searchable and awesome. Uh, you can find it at getintocollege.com forward slash blog. We have a great Pinterest account. We are on LinkedIn, our website, getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.